Good morning. If you're new with us, I encourage you to go back in our series in Daniel and listen to the last two weeks. They are worth hearing. But let me give us a quick recap. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He besieged Jerusalem and took captive the best and brightest of Israel's youths. Uh, By youth, we're probably talking tweens or early teens, most likely 11 to 13-year-old boys. And four of these Jewish boys are Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As captives, they're given Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are trained in all the knowledge and beliefs of the Babylonian empire. And, uh, but we see in, in chapter one that they draw some lines. There are, there are certain things they will not do because those things violate their faith. And God grants them favor with their captives and blesses their humble resistance. Then last week we saw again that when their lives were in danger, they turned to God and trusted his control of what seemed to be an out-of-control situation. And again, God grants them favor, and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar gives them promotions. And then some time passes between chapter 2 and chapter 3. These youths are now men. They are still active in the Babylonian government. They are still captives, serving at Nebuchadnezzar's wish, which comes with zero job security and no rights. This is not a democracy. The king's desire dictates everyone's lives. And we see right away in the beginning of chapter three that power mattered to Nebuchadnezzar. Building a giant golden image and having his officials show up to bow down to it was a power move. Uh, Daniel three is a loyalty test. Nebuchadnezzar orders all the people running his government to show up at one place at one time to bow down to and worship an image he set up. And his employees toe the line. It says in the second half of verse seven, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. His loyalty test appears to be a success until we get to verse eight. Therefore, at that, cert- at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, if you're like me, you immediately have a question. How, if everyone is face down on the ground worshiping the statue, do these Chaldeans see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not worshiping? Um, This sounds like a setup. It, It sounds like these Chaldeans were jealous of the position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. These Jewish captives had been placed in positions of authority at the end of chapter two, and it doesn't appear to sit well with the Chaldeans. It has been years, and the Chaldeans can't see past their otherness, that outsiders have been elevated above insiders, above Chaldeans. They clearly were not fans of outsiders in positions of power and prestige, so they're looking for a chance to knock them down a peg, or in this case, all the way down to death. Um, And notice the command given was to fall down and worship. But what do they lead with? Verse 12, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. First, these men pay no attention to you. Not true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are paying very close attention. They heard the command loud and clear, and I can only presume that it brought another command, a commandment to mind. 
Perhaps God's words in Exodus 20 rang in their ears. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego paid attention to Nebuchadnezzar, but they paid more attention to God. It was precisely their paying attention that got them in trouble. Being faithful to God has consequences. What's the charge of the Chaldeans? Again, in verse 12, they do not serve your gods. Technically, Nebuchadnezzar is ordered to bow down and worship the image of gold may not have required serving any gods, but this shows the Chaldeans have been watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and waiting for an opportunity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's lives have consistently demonstrated what God they do serve and what gods they do not serve. There is evidence in their everyday life of their faith and service. Could the same charge be leveled against us? Is there evidence in my everyday life and in your everyday life of our faith and service? We all serve someone or something. The Chaldeans could tell whom Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served, and it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar or his gods. Can people, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our students, our teachers, the people we interact with in the mundane aspects of life, can they tell whom we serve? Remember, people are paying attention. They notice And they tend to notice in the moments we'd most like them to have go unnoticed. And the final charge of the Chaldeans is actually the one directly tied to Nebuchadnezzar's order. They do not worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego most definitely do not worship the golden image. Now, they could have chosen to fall down at the sound of the music, like everyone else, because who would know if they were really worshiping, right? Who knows what's in their hearts? They could have justified external compliance with internal rebellion. And that might be a reasonable strategy for a non-essential issue. That could even be what we saw in chapter one when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were willing to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans, a non-essential issue. But they know when to draw the line, right? They know the difference between essential and non-essential. And it appears that external compliance with worshiping an image of gold crosses the line into essential and they're unwilling to go there. Serving in the king's government was not too much. Learning and living in that society was not too much. Obeying the king and showing up on the plain of Dura for a loyalty test, not too much. But bowing down and worshiping, too much. The line was drawn and they stayed on their feet. They knew what was essential and what was non-essential. They chose to live peaceably in the non-essentials, even when they didn't agree with them. And they chose to live in quiet nonconformity when it was essential. There's no indication they ever said a word or crossed their arms or in any way made a scene of their nonconformity. They simply stayed on their feet. Few, if any of us, will be asked to bow down to a literal statue, but there are still essential issues and non-essential issues today, and sometimes we get them mixed up. Right? We make a big deal out of issues that are not essential to our faith, and we use them to label and categorize and divide. Some of them are important issues, but they are not essential. They aren't worth dividing over. They certainly aren't worth maligning people over. They may warrant thoughtful and humble conversation, heavy on the listening, but they don't warrant bitterness or anger. 
And for those of us who follow Jesus, are we truly immersing ourselves in God's word to identify the essentials? If we don't know his word and what he says, we could be causing damage by conflating essential and non-essential issues. We have a lot to learn from how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived with quiet confidence and clarity on the essentials. They knew when to stay on their feet. And look at Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Furious rage. Word study on this section of Daniel is difficult because starting in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, the book's written in Aramaic as opposed to Hebrew. So most of these words only appear in this section of Daniel. So it's not possible to see their usage in other parts of scripture. But furious rage literally means rage, rage. He was so enraged they had to say it twice to emphasize his fury. And why was he enraged? He gathers all these people and all but three comply. That seems like a pretty good pass rate on his loyalty test. But any non-compliance is a problem. Nebuchadnezzar, like many in power then and now, he governs by fear. And no doubt, he knows that many on that plane didn't necessarily care about his image that he constructed. And maybe they weren't really worshiping it. They were going through the motions because they wanted to stay alive. But these three men are not afraid of his threat for non-compliance, and that's infuriating. When your power relies on fear and people are unafraid, you have a problem. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I find it interesting that he asked that question at the beginning. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Without seeming to give them an opportunity to answer. And notice he heard the charges leveled against them. He doesn't just question if they neglected to bow and worship. If maybe they were simply confused about the expectation. He asks if they don't serve his gods. Perhaps he recognizes that this goes deeper than their physical nonconformity and is rooted in something far more threatening to him. This is not an act of civil disobedience. This is a core issue of allegiance. And even still, he appears to be willing to give them a second chance. Verse 15, now if you are ready when you hear the music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. If he's willing to give them a second chance, does that mean he knows exactly who they are? Does he remember that when Daniel interpreted his dream and he promoted Daniel, that Daniel requested the promotion of these particular friends? Does this mean they've done good work in their positions over the affairs of the province of Babylon? Maybe he doesn't want to kill them because they are good employees and his hope, he's hoping that his rage will inspire them to just go through the motions of compliance. We don't know. But then he asks the most amazing question at the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Remember, this is about power. Nebuchadnezzar asks the right question, but his reasons are wrong. He thinks he has the power. He thinks he's in control. He's unable to believe that there is a power greater than his. And it's also interesting to note here that every time you see the word God or gods in this chapter, whether it's with an uppercase G or a lowercase G in our English text, it's the exact same Aramaic word, Allah. 
There's no distinction in their verbiage between who we know to be the true God, which our Bibles show with a capital G, and false gods. When Nebuchadnezzar asks this question, we don't have reason to think he grasps the difference between his gods with little g's and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's god with a big G. He does not understand the power differential between gods he views as all being the same. And then we arrive at one of the most stunning speeches in the Bible, the crux of our passage, and one of my favorite passages in the Bible, starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen to it again in the NIV. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar asks, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Or in the NIV, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This runs counter to every inclination I have ever felt in far less serious situations. Our human nature is to answer, to defend, to justify, to get in our shots. We see this all the time on social media. We hear it in conversation. We feel accused and we get defensive and maybe even go on the offensive. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand something I miss too often. God does not need me to defend him. God will answer. They were not silent. They had a role to play, and so do I. But they understood their role. I need this reminder, maybe you do too, that God does not need me to get defensive or launch an offensive on his behalf. Look at how these three handle it. They get it right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they hold the perfect tension in their response. And when I read this, I do not hear defiance or arrogance in their words. I don't see a smirk on their faces. I hear respect and faith and meekness and mystery. There are things they are certain of and things they are uncertain of. Listen to what they say again in the NIV, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Okay, Our God can save us. He is able. They know exactly who God is and what he can do. They are certain. We will not serve any other gods. They know what God said, what he commanded, and how they are to respond. They are certain. God can we won't, that certainty. And he may or may not save us from death. They're uncertain. They know who God is and what he said, but they do not know his will and plan in this precise situation. There is tension here in what is known and unknown. This is faith. They are confident in who God is and what he said. Therefore, they can act in confidence even though they don't know what will happen. Living by faith means certainty in who God is and what he said, even as we have uncertainty in many of the day-to-day details. Faith means proceeding in alignment with who God is and what he said without a guarantee of what the outcome will be. 
I want to know the outcome. That's not faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand who God is, and they step into the tension of not knowing what God will do, but trusting what he is capable of. And this is not transactional. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are very clear. They are not refusing to bow down and worship because they know that God will save them from death. They've been promised nothing. They have no assurance they will live through this day. Look at what they say, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, they are confident God is able to save them, and he will deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar. But they don't know if that deliverance will be in the temporal world or if the deliverance will be through their death. This is faith in action. Um, My parents gave me this three summers ago. My dad was in the midst of his journey with brain cancer, and they gave me this necklace, and it says, and if not, he is still good. And if not, God is still good. Um, I wore it almost every day for the next 502 days until Jesus welcomed my dad home. I and many, many people prayed for my dad's healing more times than I can count. I knew God was able And I knew God would make my dad whole and healthy, but I did not know if that would happen here in our presence or in heaven in God's presence. I wore this necklace every day as a tangible reminder to myself in the tension of certainty and uncertainty that my dad's cancer did not change the character or capability of God, not at all. I did not know God's plan, but I knew God's character. It turns out God's plan was for my dad to experience health and wholeness in the presence of Jesus far sooner than I would have planned. And God is still good, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's speech is one of the most beautiful expressions of faith. They get it right. They are certain of who God is and what he said and what he's capable of. And they understand that that certainty is more important than their uncertainty of how God will choose to act in their circumstances. And once again, that threatens Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Same word we saw back in verse 13. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Have you ever wondered why there's a furnace here? Why in a place you'd gather people to bow down to a statue would you have a furnace big enough to throw in three grown men? Uh, It's always seemed really out of place to me. Convenient for the story, but super random. And I'd pictured this as like a big parade grounds for large ceremonial gatherings, which it seems to be. But then there's a massive furnace. Uh, As I looked into it, the thought is that this would have been a large kiln that was used in creating this golden image. It's a massive statue, and it's not clear from the text if it's solid gold or if it's overlaid with gold. But either way, they would have needed to melt and work with a lot of gold to make an image 60 cubits tall. That's almost 90 feet 
and six cubits wide, that's about nine feet, right? So they obviously needed a large kiln to do that. So the proximity to the newly finished statue, it actually makes sense. It's their work site. They worked on site. Death by furnace was not necessarily typical in the society. It was probably just a convenient threat for Nebuchadnezzar to issue since the kiln or furnace, it was still right there from the construction. And as we see in chapter two and at the end of this chapter, a more common method of death was tearing people limb from limb. Um, But Nebuchadnezzar, he's so enraged by the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that killing them in the furnace, that wasn't even enough. He ordered it superheated. He ordered the three to be bound in their clothes, and he had his mighty men, his elite soldiers, throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. And the fire's so hot, it kills the soldiers. And that's a powerful image for how hot Nebuchadnezzar's rage is that he's willing to sacrifice his elite soldiers in the process of making a point. Or at least he thinks he's making a point. Right? And there is a big part of me that wishes the story ended right here. That we didn't learn the outcome. Because the main point is their faith. The point is their confidence in God regardless of the outcome. The main point is faith that enables them to say, we know who God is. And he can save us. He is able. But even if he does not, he is still God. His character, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his power, his wisdom. His wisdom, it is unchanged, right? Their confession of who the living God is, is all we need. And we can lose that when we get caught up in the miracle. And it makes me grateful for other places in the Bible where we see the same faith and a different outcome. I think of Stephen in Acts. He's falsely accused of blasphemy. False witnesses come forward and speak against him. And in Acts 7, Stephen boldly recounts the story of the Israelites all the way through, and he faults his accusers for being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and resisting the Holy Spirit. Stephen spoke as clearly, though with many more words, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was certain of who God was. He was uncertain of what would happen to him. And Stephen was stoned to death. There was no miracle. His faith was the same, and the story ended differently. The story doesn't always have the miraculous ending, but that doesn't change who God is. And it doesn't lessen the faith of those who remained obedient. In Hebrews 11, after recounting many positive outcomes of faith, we read these words starting partway through verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The faith is the same whether the miraculous ending comes or not. The faith is the point. Back in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have made their position clear. God can save them. He will deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, they will not worship or serve any God but the true God. They are certain about who God is, even as they're uncertain what his plan is. They're thrown into a furnace for their faith. And then verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Can you imagine the fury just draining out of Nebuchadnezzar and the fear rising up? 
What explanation can there be for four men walking around unharmed in the fire when he threw in three bound men? How could a fire strong enough to kill the soldiers who just got near it not be harming Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are in it? Nebuchadnezzar seems to know. He likens the fourth to a son of the gods, and it calls to mind God's words in Isaiah 45 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced this. They walked through fire and were not burned. The flame did not consume them. And I wonder if there's maybe even a parallel to Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day in the garden with God. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though walking in the heat of the fire, having that similar experience of intimacy and nearness to God? Was this a theophany, a pre-incarnate Jesus? I'm not sure if it was Jesus or an angel, but I am sure that God is with us in the fires, in the trials. He will not always shield us from them, but he is with us in them. We see his presence, protection, and identity in the fire here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What about us? Do we have that presence, protection, and identity with us? Some of us have recognized our own brokenness. We've recognized that we are imperfect and sinful people, utterly incapable of changing ourselves. We understand we cannot put the broken pieces of our lives back together on our own. Right? We need Jesus. We need the perfect sacrifice of Jesus who lived and died and rose from the dead to conquer death and sin. If we accept his sacrifice, put our faith in him, he will forgive our sins and give us new life. We can be right with God, and we not only have the assurance of eternal security with God, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us now. Jesus promised he would not leave his followers alone. If we have put our faith in Jesus, we have the Spirit of God with us now. We can rest in Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. People may not see God with us like Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth being in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God's presence is with us. God will not leave us alone in the good or the hard or the fires. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar and you saw the three men you threw in to a superheated furnace, walking in the fire with a mysterious fourth being, what would you do? I'm not sure I'd respond like he did. I probably would have been paralyzed with disbelief or maybe needed to lie down somewhere voluntarily or involuntarily. But that's not his response. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Don't miss this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeyed Nebuchadnezzar. He commanded them to come out and they did. They obey at the right times. Command to bow down to a golden image, disobey. That's an essential line they will not cross. Command to walk out of a fire, obey. There's no essential reason for them to disobey him here. So they obey. Verse 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, 
Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. We see in Nebuchadnezzar's words that he knows exactly what they did, why they did it, and whom they did it for. They disobeyed him, their king, because their allegiance was first and foremost to God. They trusted God to the point of being willing to die rather than serve or worship any other god. Nebuchadnezzar understood, but it was recognition, not submission. He recognized the power of God, but he did not submit to God. As a pantheist, he was willing to add Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God in with his other gods, but he was unwilling to denounce his gods and submit to the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar's pronouncement about God at the end, it seems a little like saying in a very poor analogy, a Labrador retriever is the best dog ever. You can still own any dog you want, but you can't say anything bad about Labrador retrievers. If you say anything bad about a lab, you'll be killed. Have whatever kind of dog you want and as many as you want, but no dog retrieves like a Labrador. A statement like that gives no indication Nebuchadnezzar was converted to only owning Labradors, just that he recognized the Labrador's superiority in this one regard. Right? This is a hasty official pronouncement that shows recognition, but not submission. His allegiance is still not to God. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God's supremacy, but he does not express fidelity to the true God. He maybe takes a step closer. His awareness of God is growing, but he's not there. Head knowledge only gets us so far. When we studied James this summer, we saw that the demons know who God is. They have the knowledge, but that does not save them. Knowledge is not to be confused with faith. Knowledge requires nothing of us. Faith requires action. Nebuchadnezzar had knowledge about God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had faith in God, and they acted on it, even though the outcome of their faith was not assured. In our last verse, verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They get a promotion, but I imagine that was far from the highlight of their day. When they reflected on the day later, I'm sure they found much more joy in their obedience to God and in their encounter in the fire than in the promotion a king gave them, right? They were unconcerned with the type of power and position Nebuchadnezzar could give. They showed up to a loyalty test and they passed, not in their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, but in their loyalty to God. They knew what they were walking into and I am amazed by their posture. They could have come in with bluster and bravado with a plan to be loudly defiant, We see lots of that these days, but the text doesn't show that. Instead, we see three men who quietly and respectfully did the right thing. They never try to convince anyone of anything. They are not overwhelmed by the display of ferocious power of an angry king. They're not afraid of losing their jobs, their status. No, they were citizens of distinction, not of Babylon necessarily, but of the kingdom of of God. They held their positions in Babylon loosely because they knew those positions didn't define them. Their identity was in God, not in their titles that could change at the whim of a king. They never accused or belittled or lashed out. They knew who they were. They knew who God was. They knew who Nebuchadnezzar was, and they knew the impotence of his gods. They did not know that morning or when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar or when they were being carried to the mouth of the furnace what the outcome would be. But their faith held. They knew what God was capable of, even though they didn't know what he would do. 
What about us? Do our words and our actions show our faith in who God is and what he said, even when we don't know what he'll do in our present circumstances? We all face loyalty tests, though they're not nearly as extreme as the one in Daniel 3. Right? In your life, can you say with confidence, I know who Jesus is, I know what he said, and I'm okay not knowing everything he will do or how he will do it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are you and we are not. Thank you that we can put our faith in you with confidence despite all the many, many things we do not know. Our lack of knowledge does not change your worthiness of our faith. We love you and we praise you. In your name, amen.